From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. Tipped workers across Illinois would make minimum wage instead of sub-minimum wage if a new proposal passes in Springfield. These workers need to be paid a full living wage that starts with guaranteeing minimum wage with tips on top. This industry is dominated by women. And if we want to truly invest in women, and we are truly for women, then you gotta pay them what the hell you owe them. The legislation would be similar to what Chicago City Council approved in October, phasing out the city's sub-minimum wage for tipped workers over five years. In a statement, the Illinois Restaurant Association says in part, this legislation will do more harm than good as it will fundamentally change the way all restaurants operate, hurting our smaller, family-run and minority-owned businesses the most. Well, after Chicago moved to do away with the tipped wage, supporters are pushing to do it statewide now. We will discuss that and also another attempt to enact a child tax credit. Just some of the legislative action that's starting to get some attention in the new session of the General Assembly. That's coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Charlie Wheeler is off this week, but we do have two guests with us. Hannah Meisel, a reporter for Capital News Illinois. Hannah, it's always good to have you back with us. Thanks for having me, Sean. Also with us, we have Patrick Keck. He covers the State House for the State Journal Register in Springfield and Gannett Newspapers. Patrick, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So, Patrick, I'll go to you first. You were at the Capitol this week when some interesting legislation came about. We saw a rally going on for this, and it is to do away with the tipped wage. I'm not sure everybody completely understands the difference between the minimum wage and the tipped wage. So what is that right now? What is the monetary difference between them, and what do some people want to see happen? As the state moved forward with its plan of its gradual increase to minimum wage, uh, $15 an hour, um, that also kind of kicked off the uh, gradual increase in subminimum wage, also known as the tip wage. Uh, so currently this year it stands at eight dollars and forty cents. So that is what you know a tip worker would receive, plus any you know additional tips they might receive while working. Um, so this bill um, it's being led um, by uh, uh, Representative Lisa Hernandez and uh, now Senator Lakeisha Collins, um, this would basically put them up to that $15 standard starting next year, um, plus, again, any tips that they would um, receive. Um, and, you know, really, this is seen as a way to um, attract more people to um, the industry that was really hit hard by covid um, it still hasn't reached um, those levels of, of employment, um, the, uh, according to the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that is. Um, but again, there um, are varying voices on this. The Illinois Restaurant Association um, is opposed to it, saying that this is just going to increase expenses that they will incur and therefore will be kind of passed on to uh, customers. And I also saw, the, uh, Patrick, that the Restaurant Association said that uh, tipped restaurant workers, the median wage for them actually uh, comes out to being something like $28 an hour when you factor in tips. 
Uh, now, that may not be everywhere across the state or certainly every restaurant worker, but they're basically saying, hey, this they're doing fine, these people that are, are working at the restaurant. They're, they're being paid uh, well above what that minimum wage would be and maybe would make less if this change occurred. Is that uh, is that what their uh, argument is? Yes. And when, when at, during the press conference earlier this week, that was a point. You know, the, the statement actually, I think, had come out before the press conference. So um, the, uh, the speakers had an opportunity to kind of respond to uh, the Restaurant Association. Um, statistics that were mentioned, um, uh, the group kind of leading this, in addition to uh, obviously the lawmakers, um, is a national group called One Fair Wage. Um, they have been involved with um, several states now um, that are also considering this kind of legislation. I, I believe they're, I, I'm blanking on how many states have this currently, um, but basically uh, one fair wage, they have provided statistics and they're saying current tip wages are around, I think around $27,000 a year is what their claim was. So um, that's something I, you know, we'll have to kind of look into more as far as, obviously these are advocacy groups here that have varying sides on it. So how this will impact uh, workers if it does move forward, um, you know, that's something that I think, you know, we need to keep an eye on. So, And I looked this up a little bit, and Hannah, you you followed this because uh, it's come up before, and of course it uh, happened in Chicago just recently, but I believe I saw maybe like less than 10 states may have it, and some places, some restaurants had decided to do this on their own in different locations. Some said it's been a success, others have said not so much. Um, I guess it's it's a little too early to see, and certainly the numbers can be massaged however somebody wants to. Uh, but have you heard much fallout from this uh, taking over, uh, taking place, I should say, in Chicago uh, since it's been in effect? Well, no. I mean, to be clear, the Chicago ordinance will phase this out uh, over five years. Uh, so, you know, when the city council voted to you know, phase out the subminimum wage in October. It's not like it immediately, uh, you know, came true. But you know, the argument over this for years has been that, um, you know, a lot of places, especially um, cash only, um, you know, either well, there's been several arguments. Uh, some people claim that oh no, servers are not reporting their cash tips to taxes. Uh, you know, we can debate whether that's truly the worst thing in the world, whatever. But, uh, you know, the other argument has been for years that, um, you know, managers, owners that are not working in good faith have shorted their um, servers because they're supposed to be made up, made whole with their tips because the whole idea is that you're getting some minimum wage, but you're going to be made whole to what would be, you know, your regular wages with tip, but you know, that doesn't always happen. Uh, and it is an industry, um, like we heard at the top of the show that is, um, you know, kind of dominated by women and women getting shorted and there's all sorts of gender dynamics in those sort of workplaces. But, you know, I, I do think though, that I don't think there's going to be fallout. I also don't think that people are going to like immediately stop tipping. It's ingrained into American culture to tip. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to Europe, but like, you know, it's very, it's over there, you don't tip, but you feel so weird as an American just leaving without tipping. And so a lot of Americans do tip and I'm sure a lot of 
you know, servers over there uh, like that, even if they think it's a little strange. But yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't know about Fallout. Uh, obviously, the Illinois Restaurant Association um, is firmly against it. And they're a group that has a lot of sway in the state house. But yeah, this is a this is an issue that's come up over and again. I feel like the last time it was seriously discussed was back in like 2019. That's when the minimum wage for Illinois was, uh, you know, as one of Governor Pritzker's first uh, items uh, after, you know, being inaugurated, he wanted to up Illinois' minimum wage to $15 an hour over a period of five years. We're about to next year in 2025 reach that uh, $15 an hour finally. And the fair wage, the subminimum wage folks uh, were kind of upset back then that it wasn't considered. So this is a cyclical thing and we'll see what happens. We'll see, you know, who uh, could outmuscle each other. Is it the progressives that have the muscle this time or will the restaurant association uh, be able to tamp it down? I don't know. Yeah, Patrick, this seems like something that there's some some logical arguments on both sides. I think you touched on some of those earlier with the, the fact that uh, you know, people have, the restaurants have had a difficult time in many cases keeping employees post-pandemic. And also at the same time, if they have to start implementing uh, higher higher uh, bills for, uh, you know, on, on people when they go out to eat uh, to cover some of these costs, that could cause people not to go out as much or maybe not even to go to that restaurant. So it seems like both sides probably have some, some discussions to go through here, but I think you know it's logical to say, well, you might be right and you might be right. Is that uh, is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, so the time of the news conference, uh, you know, the specific language on the bill had not been filed. Um, so you know, I think that's you know that's kind of the beauty of the legislative process. You get an introduction of a bill. Um, sometimes uh, it's understood that this is. Uh, a work in progress, almost like a, a rough draft. So um, I do think, uh, you know, as far as this moving forward, um, those conversations, uh, you know, will probably shape whatever changes might be needed um, to, you know, get the right amount of votes uh, for this to actually uh, become a reality. Well, let's switch gears. Something that's getting a lot of discussion at the federal level is an expansion of the child tax credit. Well, there's also a push here in Illinois to create a child tax credit. I think I looked up and it was about, oh, 15 or so states have one of these. And this would, uh, under this plan, would make the single parents making less than 50000 a year eligible, couples who file jointly eligible if they make less than $75,000 a year, and they would get a $300 child tax credit uh, for each child each year. Uh, supporters are saying this is this is a good deal for working families. Patrick, uh, this, this has come up in the past as well. Does it seem to have a little more, more traction this year? Um, yes, I... I... Again, everything is early, but um, their state rep uh, Marcus Evans is leading this bill. And uh, you know, earlier this year, he had another very similar type of bill, um, but had it be a seven hundred dollar tax credit. And as our understanding is, you know, this is, you know, it's now at this lower threshold. Basically, um, you know, after conversations with the governor's office. Um, to kind of make this uh, a little bit less of a chunk um, that would be coming out of the uh, the state's uh, you know finances. Um, so this um, 
as we've been told, this would be about $300 or 300 million rather um, dollars uh, in terms of funding that the state would be ultimately providing in terms of these tax credits, um, which um, as some of the groups noted, yes, that is a, a solid amount of money, but overall it's less than 1% of the state budget. Um, so um, earlier reports on, you know, what a $700, um, a $700 million, uh, gosh, uh, you know, credit would be obviously would have had um, would have taken a little bit more out of the state's uh, uh, funding. Um, so this is kind of seen as a, um, I guess, a, um, yes, accounting for um, needs of parents, low-income parents um, throughout the state, but not having as much of a fiscal hit. And Hannah, this sounds very similar to me to when the minimum wage was being increased, and that is if you put a little bit more money back in in working families' pockets, that money gets spent, improves the overall economy, sales taxes, things like that. So some people see this as a real win-win. Um, I don't know if the governor will do that when if he'll see it that way when he produces his budget, but that seems to be the argument that's being made, right? Well, right. And the governor, to be clear, he has not committed uh, to supporting this, um, but it's definitely a progressive rallying cry, not just in Illinois, but all over the place, you know, um, during the pandemic, when the federal uh, child tax credit was uh, increased, you know, you had organizations from all over saying, oh, my gosh, this was what a huge win for eliminating child poverty. Uh, and then when, of course, it was rolled back to, you know, pre-pandemic, um, you know, you had a lot of outrage from uh, groups like that. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think that this is not... I think that it could possibly go in the governor's budget. Um, you know, he's definitely surprised pe folks before with what he's uh, put into his budget proposals. Um, you know, things that he had previously been, say, non-committal on, uh, you know, puts it in and then kind of claims that as, it as his own. Um, but yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of budget pressures, though, and we, um, it's going to be the tighter, tightest budget year I think we've seen in a while, because um, even in 2020, when we were very worried about what would happen to the state's budget, uh, you still had federal money coming in. Of course, that has not been the case for a while. Yeah, and Patrick, that hasn't stopped uh, others from wanting different tax credits. I think I saw Illinois manufacturers have a proposal, and maybe some other uh, people talking about small businesses getting a break. So. A lot of lot of talk out there about trying to give some tax credits at a time when, like Hannah said, the pressures are mounting on the state budget. Correct. Um, yeah, the one note um, that we've been following um, the State Journal Register is the um, uh, tax credit for um, student loans. Um, so this would uh, set um, about a little over $5,000 to an employer who has helped um, one of its workers cover some of its student loan debt. Um, so we're not really, we haven't found uh, any fiscal data on that yet. Um, so again, though, it's it's uh, as typical in this part of the, the session, um, a lot of people have their ask. Um, we'll just kind of have to see 
what the governor ultimately puts in his proposal and uh, how uh, lawmakers will move forward from there. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and we are talking with Patrick Keck of the State Journal Register and Hannah Meisel with Capital News Illinois. You're listening to State Week. Uh, quickly, we have some different things we want to get to as well on the show in the few minutes we have left. And one of those, uh, Patrick, I'm going to stay with you. Uh, one of the stranger stories I've seen uh, came out of Carlinville last year. A funeral home director had uh, provided the wrong cremated remains to various families. And I'm not sure we still know exactly how many, uh, but there is an investigation going on. The Sangamon County coroner uh, brought this to uh, the, the public's attention, and now there's some legislation that has been proposed. What would it do? Right. Um, so, again, with this being a, um, an investigation led by uh, Coroner Jim Alman, um, it is also kind of local legislators here in uh, Springfield taking it up. Um, so there are two bills um, being led right now, uh, first um, by uh, Senator uh, Doris Turner. Um, this would basically um, set a procedure um, as far as, you know, how to process um, human remains um, and establish uh, what's called a unique identifier tagging system. Um, so that would basically be telling people, um, you know, because the, the issue at hand here was people were getting, uh, you know, ash remains uh, of people that were not their loved ones. Um, so this bill would seek to clarify that, um, make sure that does not, you know, the whether it was a, a mix-up, an honest error, or, you know, there was, you know, foul play um, involved, uh, that this bill is seen as a way to uh, decrease the chances of that happening. Um, on the other hand, uh, Senator McClure, um, our Republican uh, Springfield uh, senator, um, along with, with uh, others, uh, Mike Coffey, Wayne Rosenthal, um, they're going forward with a bill that would criminalize people that um, have uh, mishandled human remains. Uh, it'd be a class four felony. Um, so, you know, people that, you know, improperly handle this, they could be facing uh, potential prison time uh, up to three years. Um, as our understanding, uh, Senator Turner, isn't taking a position on uh, Senator McClure's bill, um, but there seems to be, you know, this is obviously a big local issue, um, you know, Carlinville um, and the ongoing investigation uh, last we've heard, this is involving over 80 families. So um, there is a sense for, you know, we can, you know, work in a bipartisan fashion on this. Um, so we'll just kind of see where this moves forward. Um, and I should mention that funeral home director had his license taken away as well. We'll continue to follow this story. Well, this week, Hannah, uh, despite some nice weather in the Springfield area, you spent some time inside in the courtroom at the federal court building. Sam McCann, people might remember him. He's a former state senator, uh, represented part of the Springfield area down to the Metro East, and he also ran as a third-party candidate for governor a few years ago. But he's got some legal troubles. He was set to go to trial this week, didn't show up. What is the latest with Sam McCann? It has been uh, quite the week in uh, courtroom one in the federal courthouse here downtown. Um, Sam McCann, like you mentioned, uh, kind of unique character. I remember him from when I was an intern 10 years ago. 
Um, and then, of course, like you said, he ran for governor. Before then, he had, um, you know, gone toe-to-toe with former Republican Governor Bruce Rauner in 2016. People remember um, Rauner had put up a candidate against McCann. McCann got a lot of labor money, and he eked out a victory there. And then in 2018, uh, got a bunch of money from labor again, uh, put up a third-party run for governor uh, that would, you know, supposed to help you know, defeat Bruce Rauner, not that Rauner needed much help being defeated. Uh, You know, that race was called pretty early on election night in 2018. But nonetheless, McCann, apparently during those two runs, you know, the later years when he was in office, um, had been misspending his campaign funds, uh, you know, among other things, using that money to help him purchase vehicles and two RVs. Uh, and McCann had been indicted about three years ago. I think the, the three-year anniversary was last week. And um, his trial was supposed to begin uh, in November. And we all showed up to the courtroom in November. And uh, he suddenly said, uh, hey, I'm firing my court-appointed attorneys, which, you know, he's getting he was getting court-appointed attorneys because he says he was basically indigent, broke, and couldn't pay for attorneys himself. Um, and, but instead he said, Hey, goodbye. I don't want you. I'm going to represent myself. And so the judge grant had granted him a 10 week delay. And then of course, 10 weeks later, uh, this past Monday morning, we were all set to be in the courtroom again, but instead his, uh, standby attorney told the judge that he was actually in the hospital and he had checked himself in after a week of a weekend rather of feeling unwell and uh the judge was um understandably not so happy about that but we had some incremental status hearings just a bizarre week of video conferencing in from his hospital bed in st louis uh according to u.s attorney uh assistant u.s attorney tim bass all of mccann's uh tests in the hospital except for one came back normal, and yet he still stayed for several days. But then, uh, you know, the the trial was delayed again until this coming Monday. And then uh, yesterday, we're taping on Friday morning, uh, yesterday, Thursday afternoon, uh, suddenly uh, another status hearing was scheduled uh, to see whether uh, McCann's bond should be revoked and that he should be confined to his home before trial begins, just to, you know, kind of make sure nothing else happened. But instead, uh, McCann couldn't prove that he had actually communicated with the probation office like he was supposed to. After he was discharged from the hospital, he was supposed to let them know when he got home and, uh, you know, not leave. And um, (laughs) he uh, went outside. We watched him go outside to his truck to get his uh, phone to show the judge that he had, in fact, emailed but then when he brought the phone back into the courtroom he couldn't actually find the email that he said he sent and the judge uh said all right you're out of chances you're out of excuses uh and you will be taken into custody today immediately so we watched him uh we didn't watch him get handcuffed or anything but we watched him get uh you know go across the hall with the u.s marshals and uh kind of take into a room for processing uh, we saw into the room. It has a bit of a holding cell or something like that in there. I guess that's he's going to remain in custody until 
you know, Monday when his trial is finally supposed to be in and he's supposed to be representing himself. Just a wild week there, but uh, just, oh, a f- yeah. just a few seconds left here, Hannah. But I-, I think myself, I'm one of these people that can remember back not that long ago when, when it came to money, campaign money, people could pretty much do what they wanted to with it. But there are more rules in place now. There are restrictions. So uh, according to the prosecution, that he's violated some of those laws, that there are restrictions on it. Some people might think there aren't. Yeah, I mean, so there are different restrictions for folks who had a campaign account before, I think it was 1999, when uh, former uh, Illinois State Senator Barack Obama uh, was one of the ones who was leading the charge of campaign finance reform. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you're you're not supposed to generally use your campaign funds on personal expenses. And, you know, a lot of people do kind of blur the lines uh, on, you know, what you know, using their personal vehicles for campaigns, you don't always want to have two vehicles to your name. That's a lot. But, you know, it people get in trouble. We've saw basically the same thing happened uh, in 2016 when Aaron Schock was indicted, the former Republican rising star congressman. Uh, you know, he had also used campaign funds uh, for personal vehicles and, you know, had misstated gas mileage out of his, you know, official government accounts. It's just, you know, so on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, maybe these rules are convoluted. But on the other hand, you definitely say most people really don't seem to have much trouble following the rules. Okay, well, we'll continue to follow that case as it's headed for trial, it appears. So we will move on to our notes from the field. And Patrick, I'm going to start with you. Again, another local uh, Senator Turner bill being led here. Um the city of Springfield passed a, a moratorium in November. It put a pause on its hiring uh, residency requirement. So right now we can, uh, the city can hire people um, outside of city limits. Um, and a bill filed by Senator Turner would prevent any municipality um, from establishing such a moratorium. Um, so it's kind of uh, a local senator um, responding to a local situation um, this was a, an initiative led by uh, Mayor Misty Boucher, um, and basically the, the thought is the city, like cities throughout the state, uh, is hiring to, uh, struggling to uh, hire, retain workers, um, and basically they are expanding their pool. Um, interesting note on Springfield's uh, moratorium, um, it's going to be revisited in November, um, but we don't know, uh, is there a sunset date? Um, the city of Decatur had a uh, kind of a similar uh, moratorium for um, its police tires, um, but it required um, uh, its, uh, for those workers to be about 40 miles or so um, away from a police, uh, the police department headquarters. Um, there's no, uh, no mileage distance um, limit, I guess, uh, for, for Springfield workers. Um, so theoretically, uh, somebody could live in St. Louis uh, and work for the city of Springfield. Uh, it's a long commute, um, but uh, you could do that under the the moratorium as uh, it stands. Okay. And Hannah? Well, on Monday, I won't be in the courtroom with Sam McCann because I'll be in a different federal courtroom up in Chicago watching Tim Mapes, the longtime chief of staff to former Illinois House Speaker Mike Madigan, uh, get sentenced 
in August, he had been convicted on perjury and obstruction of justice uh, charges because feds had alleged that he had um, basically covered for and refused to acknowledge um, that he knew about the relationship between uh, Mike Madigan and his kind of top confidant, Mike McLean, a very powerful lobbyist for uh, electric utility ComEd. Uh, of course, this was part of the sprawling um, federal pro criminal probe into Madigan, Madigan's orbit. Uh, Madigan himself, of course, supposed to go on trial in April, but that trial has been delayed in that, until October, and I will be there too. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for State Week. Our panel included Hannah Meisel with Capital News Illinois and Patrick Keck of the State Journal Register. Charlie Wheeler will be back with us next week. Look for State Week where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. And join us next time. I'm Sean Crawford. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.